Welcome to the Monday Minute of the Hunt Back Country podcast. These are shorter and more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. Steve, I was solo last week. You're back. How are you, man? I am doing very well. Yeah. It's, um, it's getting close, man. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> it's like, holy crap, man. I was, I was out of town with the family for a few days on a trip to Washington and, uh, yeah, I had my wife drive a bunch, like just sit on the passenger side of my laptop and just between work notes and, you know, gear list, like getting ready for hunt notes. It's like, holy crap. It's, uh, yeah. Say yeah. it every year, right? Like, wow, summer flew by and here it is dang near August and we're going to be hunting soon. Yeah. You're going to be sheep sure. hunting, you son of a gun. <laughs> well, so you, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, shoot, a month from pretty much a month from today it should be uh up in alaska which is it's been such a crazy year with launching k4 and i didn't even find out about this opportunity until uh kind of late winter so i haven't had as much time to mentally wrap my head around it even uh and then just yeah the chaos of launching k4 and moving and all that it's like holy cow it's came up way too fast and snuck up on me but uh i'm ready man i, I still like almost in a good way don't like haven't fully processed it which i kind of like because i'm just going in with like what i don't know what to expect right like it's just it's the beauty of the unknown and i've you know been to alaska and numerous times but never this part never hunted sheep so there's all these like unknowns that i'm just kind of embracing as unknowns and to me that's making it really exciting yeah that's uh certainly there's nothing like it yeah you mentioned uh you mentioned gear list. We, I say we, we through born and raised shared a uh, kind of a newer what's in my pack. You were over with the born and raised guys for a couple of days and they put out a kind of like a look at your, like what would be a three to four day elk hunt, I believe was the scenario, right? Yeah. Just all, yeah. Basically what I would take with me on a backpack elk hunt. Yeah. So that came out uh on the born and raised channel some some of you guys that may have seen that we actually just shared it uh last night in an email and exo email as well some of you guys may have seen that but uh if you didn't we'll leave a link in the show description and one thing i think is good is it's it's not just the gear you talked in there steve which is always a helpful uh clarification that it's very dependent on how you're hunting right like the gear you're choosing isn't always the best for everything. It's the best for what you do. And so pairing use case and philosophy and time of year with gear is ultimately what makes the most sense. But uh, any other, like, I know you even still, like even from Cody will get questions on stuff uh, or any messages or questions you've kind of got since that video that have come up or stuck out to you. The water, the new water filter popped up a lot. I've had a handful of guys ask me about that because that's obviously changed for both of us the last well, really last year, this year with the new, that Hydropack three liter. And then they're, they, they came out with their own filter this year. And then I'm still using the beef free one that screws right into the same threads. That's come up quite a bit. And, um, that obviously that's, that system just keeps getting, you know, it's not like that far from the Sawyer system we've been doing forever. It just, uh, just keeps getting more refined and more dialed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, as far as the video, you know, it was such a, I literally, Cody was trying to get me out there and we had so much going on between, I had some trips planned with the family and then work's obviously been real busy. I, this is a, like, 
a few days prior, I bought the flight and was out there for a whopping 27 hours or something like that. Super quick trick trip over there. But, and I just threw, you know, one of the things in my video was like, Hey, have, you know, and we've talked about this a million times, just have a, a very dialed in gear list, have your gear, you know, just my stuff's not like super organized by any means, but it's everything I have is in three big black totes in the, in my garage. Right. And so it's super easy to go out there and just start at the top of the list. Okay. Pack, water filter, tent, stakes, fork, wipes, you know, just move down the list, throw everything in a duffel. And I, you know, in a matter of 30 minutes, I, that on Sunday night, cause I was flying out Monday, I had just went through the list, grabbed everything, threw it in the duffel and jumped on the flight the next day and went over there. And I had absolutely everything I needed. And I think that's such a critical tool. And that takes time to, to develop your own list, but certainly, you know, even with Cody, we shared, uh, I shared like a kind of a, a master list that we built for SNS archery emails quite a few years ago. I updated a few things in there, but just have that dialed in list, you know? Or, yeah. So my head was, you know, print off our list that we just shared and, and use that and then just adapt it to yourself over time. Everyone has different preferences and um, just stick to the list and you know, you're good to go. You're not going to be, oh, I forgot this. Oh, I forgot that. Just start at the top one at a time, go down it. It just simplifies things so much instead of feeling kind of overwhelmed, you know, and you'll be in that same situation with Kodiak, right? Like you're, you know, your list, but you've got multiple choices per item, which mm-hmm. in itself creates, creates confusion. You know, I've, I've been there. Like I take this tent or that tent. Do I take this ring gear or that ring gear? Um, you know, a lot of the gear stays the same, but there are variants in there. Um, so that's my big takeaway, just reaffirming like how critical it is to have that list and just stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. I covered the water system uh, in last week's podcast uh, pretty in depth because we've gotten a lot of podcast questions about it. Um, so if you guys are wanting to hear more about that, go back to the last Monday minute and then also the links in that show's description, we linked kind of the, to the specifics of the items or the components that we're using for the water system. But one thing I I don't think I covered in there explicitly, because um, I got a couple questions about it after the fact, is you and I, Steve, have talked about carrying our dirty water bladder and like something like a HydroPack Seeker, uh, you know, three, four liters, what have you. And guys were asking where we actually carry that. So if we're carrying three or four liters of dirty water, are we putting it in the actual bladder compartment where a water bladder is meant to go in our packs or somewhere else? So uh, I do something, I don't know, kind of unique, I guess. I started this, I think, on my goat hunt last year, um, kind of out of convenience. Like we were stopping and moving. And at one point I had filled up water and this was early in the hunt. And, you know, early in a backpack hunt, my pack was pretty full. I had my rifle strapped to the side. So it was like, it wasn't, I was going to maybe put it in one of the full length side pockets, which can be a great option. Uh, but at the time we were kind of in a hurry and making this big push and climb. And I had a tripod strapped on one side and a rifle strapped on the other and no big deal to unbuckle that and use a, a full length side pocket. But I didn't necessarily want to in the moment. And then the bladder compartment again is usable, but my bag was stuffed pretty full because it's the beginning of this long hunt and I was carrying a lot of gear. So that was, you know, not the most convenient in that moment. And I just took my lid and I unclipped the front bag to lid connection, flipped my lid back, set my water bladder 
essentially on top of the bag where the roll top is, brought the lid back over it, clipped it, snugged it tight. And then my water bladder is just riding there. Um, if I need to access it, just unclip it, flip the lid back, get it, put it back, flip the lid over, boom. So it's really quick and easy to access. And then it's also kind of protected in a way, right? Like the lid's covering it. It's not, it wasn't moving or sloshing or going to get snagged on brush or anything like that because that was irrelevant in that environment. Um, so I started doing that kind of quick and hastily. And then I don't always do that per se. It kind of depends on the scenario and how full my bag is and how much water I'm carrying. But that's definitely an option that I, I didn't like look at intentionally. But once I did it, just kind of naturally, it's like, oh, I actually really like this. So long story mm-hmm. short, that's one way that I do it is between or on top of the bag and under the lid, essentially. But yeah, what other options uh, have you done, Steve? W- one thing I was saying in my mind as you're t- describing that, I would take the roll top and clip it through the kind of black hypalon handle that's on that hydro pack just so it yeah. couldn't accidentally over time slip out and fall out. I mean, I'm sure you'd hear it, but just give you some safety. For me, it's just a, typically it's going to go in one of the spine scope pockets, right? Like I'm almost never do I put the tripod inside the spine scope pocket. I don't care if it's exposed. In fact, I want it exposed for easy access, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so there's always an extra spine scope pocket open that I'll just put it in. And then sometimes you get, you know, you get spine scope, tripod, and you're also trying to, um, you got a rifle. So you got a lot of things you're going to the side pocket. So depending on the weight of items, I'll move them around to balance it out. But like on our bear hunt, um, I'm trying to remember if I packed spines. No, I didn't because I was running the 2200 prototype. So I had rifle on one side and then I put the bladder on the other side. But, it, and then I've, you know, the packs, I've been in situations where the pack's completely full and I stuff it in the front stretch panel or jam it down in one of the side pockets. To me, it's just a kind of a certainly moves around depending on the hunt and what I'm carrying, whether it's rifle, bow, spine scope, tripod, you know, that stuff all kind of fluctuates. All right, Steve, this question came through. Uh, it caught me off guard, like in a good way of this guy's asking why we don't do a certain thing. And in my head, immediately, I was like, I, I would never do that. But then I had to think about why I would never do that. because <laughs> It had been quite a long time, I guess, since I maybe thought that this was even a, a good idea or a possibility. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. It just hasn't been a topic I've thought through. Uh, this guy wrote in and said, there's so much talk about food for backpack hunts. I could listen to hours and hours of podcasts on it. But I'm curious why no one talks about just taking three freeze-dried meals. I've never done it, but it's about the same daily weight as packing bars and snacks in one main meal for at night, which seems like most what most guys do. Is it just being able to do the on-the-go thing and eat a lot easier? Or what is the reason that guys don't do three dehydrated or freeze-dried meals? I hadn't thought about that in a long time, Steve. I went on that caribou hunt a long time ago and if you you can have these chart these uh air taxi charter services you know they can you can have an option to have them provide all the food and they, we got there and we we're the first hunters there and and they were uh kind of running late you know and they were getting stuff together we're like oh we'll help you out you know we got nothing to do and literally we were helping them package meals where every single thing for a week was mountain house uh 
and I just like wanted to puke. <laughs> I just like, <laughs> oh, thank God we didn't take this option, <laughs> right? Because like, <laughs> you're eating Mountain House for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and you know they had like the the yeah, ice cream bars or whatever, like for a snack yeah. or something like that. And I was just like, oh, that would just tear you up. So I think it's gotten, you know, if you had, um, uh, who's the, there's a new company out in Emmett, Idaho called Alpine Ranch. They've got some, yeah. they came by the office and have some really good food and, and got to talk with uh, the owner or one of the owners. I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, you know, it's certainly the quality of ingredient. I mean, they're treating it as if, uh, the, at least the impression I got was that as as if it was you or I trying to make the healthiest food we possibly could in our kitchen, right, to dehydrate. And that stuff's really good. And like, yeah, I could probably eat that because I just, maybe it's placebo effect, I don't know. But just knowing that it's not just crap ingredients and a bunch of stuff in there that's not good for you. Uh, maybe you could pull that off, but I, I just, yeah, wouldn't want to. And then going to his question, you know, certainly I'm on the move a lot, you know, maybe on a mule deer hunt where you are, there's a lot of sitting, you know, first thing in the morning, you could get to a glassing point, cook your meal mid afternoon. You're probably glassing waiting for the, you know, if, even if you spotted something, you're waiting for the thermals to kick up and then evening time, you're glassing again, you know, that certainly a hunt like that. It could see where there's just a lot of downtime, but for the most part, elk hunting, you know, even on your sheep hunt, you're just going to be moving, covering country. And I don't want to be, you know, have everything I need reliant on, just sit sitting in one spot waiting for, you know, 20, 30 minutes for a meal to rehydrate. And then that also the consumption of water would be a big concern to me. Certainly some areas you have plenty of water, the other areas where water's sparse, you know, it's, it stinks too, you know, even though you're still getting the water, right? Like it's, um, it's, you know, you're using it to rehydrate food. You're still getting it. It's, just not the same as you know drinking it right like you you're going to be super thirsty yeah water fuel right like you got to carry more fuel takes a lot more time um we've talked before about kind of especially during an active hunt uh trying to kind of stay consistent with not going too long of stretches without some sort of calories you know um Mm -hmm. so this idea of like hey i'm going to eat 800 calories right now and then four or five six hours later i'm going to eat 800 calories etc um that's going to affect you far differently than spacing out and having a couple hundred or a few hundred calories more frequently um again especially on a more active hunt so yeah time cost water fuel packability lack of variety uh i think there's a lot of reasons why this approach um, isn't popular. I wouldn't say that's wrong or bad or that it wouldn't work for people. Uh, I just don't think it's what's popular for for a lot of reasons. And I think cost, honestly, probably is a huge one. Guys look at, especially the mm-hmm. newer, better meals that aren't Mountain House. I don't say, I'm not saying that disparagingly. I still eat some Mountain House occasionally for certain things. But again, if we're talking about multiple meals over extended days, I certainly don't want all Mountain House. So you get into the better stuff with better quality and that comes at a cost and man, it, it, you could blink and be spending, you know, 60, 70, 80 bucks a day easily. Um, if you were getting yeah. kind of quality food, you said fuel and then I ended up buying, I'll just report on this. So I forced myself to do it. The, uh, <laughs> that exchange little adapter, right? So you can take an yeah. empty canister and a full can or yeah, two halves and then dump, dump them in. You put one in the, 
I think one in the freezer to get yep. like a temperature change. And then have you, have you done that yet? Yeah. Yeah. I bought one a couple of years ago and never touched it. So I'm glad yeah, you're, okay. I'm okay. glad you're creating some accountability <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause you told me about it. And then I went on Amazon and bought it. It's like, <laughs> I went on, it was 15 bucks, 20 bucks, something in that ballpark. And yeah. I, it's been sitting in the garage, but I've, I've got, oof, I don't know, 40, 50 kind of half empty canisters sitting out there, you know, not more than half empty, usually like a third. So I'm super curious to give it a shot and see how that goes. I certainly have like a solid full or if not two hunting seasons worth of, you know, mainly empty canisters. I think I combine into, into, you know, 10 or 12. All right, Steve, when, when are you going to tell us about that? So to create more accountability and make you yeah, do that, it. Let's, let's just make sure we both try it by next Monday. Oh, both. Okay. All right. Fine. Yeah. Sign, yeah. sign me up. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, this next question came through about elk hunting in October and whether it's worth it to have any calls with you or not. Hey, Marcus, Steve. My name is Danny. I'm from West Virginia. We've been to Wyoming three different times successfully, mule deer, antelope. My buddy of mine finally drew an elk tag. We're going for rifle season, October 10th. At that time, is it worth to have in bugle tubes? calls with us or they respond at all thanks for your time Bye. all right thanks for the question danny that's a good one and congrats on the tags and the success sounds like those guys from west virginia have been getting after it that's awesome i know for me personally steve uh especially it sounds like there's one tag and a couple guys going i would definitely have the uh non-tag holder help be a caller and pack uh calls including a bugle tube for October 10th opener. That'd be my take. Yeah. October 10th. Absolutely. You're going to, I'm not a, you know, I'm not Corey Jacobson on this subject, but there's certainly to my understanding, a second can be a second estrus cycle, right. That can click in, in early October. And certainly, I mean, we've had you and I've had some great October bugling action. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some years, yes. And then some years, no, like we rifle hunting and you hear bugles all night long and then the next year you hear zero so i i I know it's somewhat dependent on that second cycle and when that happens and i think that has to do with going back to i'm talking out my ass here when they're (laughs) uh, when they're well i believe when their uh calves drop right is the timing of from once that happens then the then they're um you know the cows are on a clock right yeah, um, I believe that's the answer. So, I, yeah, again, we, we can get more of an Not elk biologist. On, yeah, <laughs> uh, an elk biologist or somebody who really pays attention. But uh, I don't know. I just go out there and kill stuff. I don't pay too much attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly, as you said, like we've had some great bugling action. I would just say I would pack it. it I wouldn't go into the hunt with calling planning to be my primary method right like no yeah i'm not going to be running ridges and looking for a vocal bull and constantly throwing out locators or challenges or whatever it's a tool uh, and it's not my primary tool for an october hunt i want to you know use some glass try and find some bulls make as many plays as i can without the call but whether it's to locate, whether it is to maybe challenge um you know with a bugle or to get some cow calls going to get a bull interested like definitely viable um but again i just wouldn't treat it as the primary like hey let's go run and run and talk a whole bunch on a october rifle hunt 
Yeah. Yeah. I would. Yeah. Certainly great backup. I don't know if we've ever packed a bugle too, but certainly packed cow calls and uh, gone from there. I, I suppose this year I've, I'll just be tagging along with you. I'd probably pack a bugle too. Yeah. That's what uh, I think. So I've, like- I've got an archery tag and you're going to be just rifle hunting. So yeah, I would say, um, but years pass when we're both packing guns. So yeah, it's just like one more thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. But it, certainly if you got, you know, maybe a super compact, uh, I think I used to have like a Primos one, right. There was like an accordion thing that like folded up, you know, like kind of completely out of the way that could work well just as a, you know, just to have, why not? All right. This next question, this guy wrote in and his subject line was something that the effect of I'm Barrett. I am, I am embarrassed to have to ask this. So I, or right away, my <laughs> curiosity was piqued and it's something like we've it. talked about, but I, I don't think you necessarily talk about too much, especially this time of year, just to kind of encourage some guys. So he wrote in and said, Hey guys, I'm sort of embarrassed for asking this, but this September will be the first time I hunt elk solo here in Oregon. I've always hunted with two to three other guys. Can you talk about how to get over the fear of being solo in the backcountry? I'll be about four to five miles from my truck hunting from a spike camp. I still get spooked when I'm solo thinking about cats and bears, but even just the sheer silence of the big country and being all by myself. So Mm. again, we've definitely touched on this, but, uh, Bears repeating, just kind of sharing some thoughts. There's no like one answer of how to get over this. Um, but where does your head go, Steve? Get an in reach. Number one, go buy one right now. Buy it on a credit card. I don't like whatever it takes, get one. Uh, and that helps a ton because you're now, even though you're solo, you have a way to communicate and get help if you need. And the rest of it is through my own experience is just exposure to it. Get out of your head bears and cats you know like the amount of people that die by that is you know by a percentage basis is 0.0000000000001 right like it's not actually going to happen to you um so just yeah it's it's uh it's just you know irrational fear right like mm-hmm. it's it's so easy to get into your head and get scared and i certainly in his boat my, my very first trip i stayed one night and got the f out of there and uh but uh just got used to it over time and it's a process i don't like we've talked yeah we've talked about this lots so it's not i enjoy solo hunts i enjoy the challenge of it but i don't i wouldn't want to just do nothing if all i ever did was solo hunts uh i don't think i would enjoy that right i enjoy the company the camaraderie um being out there with, you know, good friends. So, but I, but I do make a point to do one or two good solo hunts a year because they're mentally challenging and uh, something about just being out there in that peace and quiet all by yourself, certainly therapeutic. I think the exposure, like what you said is, is the answer. Like ultimately you just have to expose yourself to it and kind of work through those fears or that anxiety. I don't think there's Mm -hmm. a, a shortcut to that so to this guy I would just say like do it don't let yourself quit earlier than you want to but if you do find that you had planned to go for seven days and you make it four then also don't kill yourself over that like making it those four like you said your first trip making it a night like that's exposure that's a step in the right direction mm-hmm. 
And then as you said, like on odds, one thing I go back to just mentally, and it, I 100% believe it, it's far more dangerous to drive on the highway to get there than it is to actually <laughs> be out there in your tent. Like you, the odds of you getting in a head-on collision and dying instantly on the way there, not to be morbid, that's more likely than a cat attacking you. And yeah. so- Yeah, thousand percent. Yeah, you have to like come to that realization and believe it and then let that influence your thoughts because as you said, like some of the fears are just irrational and they're real, they're feelings, they're real feelings, but you have to tell yourself that it's irrational and I just did something far more dangerous by driving here than I did there than I am by being here, essentially. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to that guy, good luck. Let us know how it goes. Do it. Uh, I think regardless of what happens on your hunt and any success, which hopefully you're successful, you're going to definitely learn about yourself and bring value from the experience for sure. All right, Steve, another speak pipe question that uh, I'm intrigued to hear your take on. You know, Hi, I was wondering if you guys do anything to keep your hunting boots from stinking um, when you're wearing them for training hikes prior to the season. I, I only have one pair of hunting boots that I wear, um, so I want to make sure that I'm comfortable wearing them, but I also don't want them to smell terrible in September. Um, I wasn't sure if there was anything I could do to prevent the stink. Um, currently, I'm removing my insoles after each session so that they can dry out, but I wasn't sure if there was like a spray or a boot dryer or anything else that you'd recommend. Thanks. All right, stinky boots. I've not thought of this from a hunting perspective in terms of like, you know, some guys are obsessed about scent control, right? I've never thought of, oh my God, an animal is going to smell my boots. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's where this guy was fully at either. Um, yeah, I, I don't do anything specific. Steve, I do like this guy mentioned to remove my insoles, dry them out. And then the other thing that immediately comes to mind for me, and I get that this may be somewhat of a financial stretch, but I would say once you figure out a pair of boots you truly love, get another pair. And so essentially your training boots and what you're using through most of the preseason is probably not the exact same pair of boots that you're hunting with. And again, I realize that that's a stretch. I'm not saying everybody should do that out of gate, but what I am saying is if you have a pair of boots you absolutely love and you know that they work for you, and you've already used them a year or two years, like they're getting somewhere, then essentially I would take that pair, make them more of your training hike boots, and then have a newer, fresher pair that you kind of hunt with. And that alone would, one, prolong the pair of your good pair of hunting boots, but two, kind of keep the bulk of, especially summer training season sweat out of your quote-unquote good pair of hunting boots. So that's where my head goes. But in terms of like sprays and all that stuff, Steve, do you do anything? You know, I had never even thought about it. Like, I'm kind of <laughs> racking my brain here. Like, yeah, I'm right. just not an issue. And I'm like, okay, do I not have stinky feet? That's like, what I, I was I certainly, I certainly sweat a lot. And, you know, my it, my t-shirt would just reek after if I wore it for four workouts in a row. And I'm like, why do my boots not just stink? It's never been an issue. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's not like there's some special treatment inside my, you know, boots that's like antimicrobial they go just they just don't stink 
I don't know, man. Yeah. Is it socks? <laughs> like, I would, could sock I, yeah, did this, use like did make a big sock difference? eat up all the odor? I don't, you know, the eat up the sweat that then would turn into an odor. I don't, I don't know. That's literally never been an issue. Like the, the one time we had, uh, you grabbed, the yeah. uh, Hanvag Overstones. Yeah, we'll tell that story because you ruined my bus. boots. <laughs> but we packed out an elk and it had to go across a river and you just elected to wear brand new boots across through it because you didn't want your bare feet to touch the rocks. Big Literally pansy. brand new. <laughs> but they were, um, you know, across the river and six, seven miles out. And then I think we just, you know, it's late October. We threw the boots and we brought up our little cargo trailer and then I brought home and then threw them in my garage. And I think they were, um, it was just that time of year where they just like a week later I went out and they were still wet. I'm like, how the hell have these not dried out yet? So I just ended up bringing them in the house, but they, because they were wet for so long, they stunk for like the second I put them on and started hiking, you know, the, the next year, just that smell came out of them. Uh, but that actually eventually went away. Um, yeah, man, I don't know. I just, yeah. I was just getting ready to offer to have you take that out of my paycheck, but you said the smell went away, yeah. so I recant my statement. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wore those, those are the boots I wore last year on my solo elk hunt. We, we I that good mojo. Yeah, 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 man. I don't know. I've, it's just never, never been an issue. It did on the born and raised video. A couple people, I think, in the YouTube comments were asking about, you know, do you not bring a change of clothes? Do you wash your clothes out there? And that. As you were saying, you haven't thought about this in years. Like I remember, you know, forever is like very scent control. Wash my clothes in scent-free soap and spray them all down. And every morning we'd spray down with, you know, some complete gimmicky BS thing that we were told was going to help us kill animals, right? Like whatever the scent killer spray and stuff like that. And I literally like don't do anything with my hunting clothes anymore. I wash them with the same laundry detergent we have at the house, which is scent-free stuff but then throw a dryer sheet in there that's you know like fresh air scent and and just wear them i mean i think you just you're gonna stink it either you can't control it especially on a backpack hunt so there's just no point in even going through any extra effort to try and you know mitigate that in any way you just i just freaking roll with it and the wind blows the wrong way you know you're sol no matter what you do yeah i mean i have seen you roll in a fresh bed full of piss but i'll leave that out i'm joking <laughs> ever since <laughs> like, i don't remember this story <laughs> all right last one speak pipe question uh guy has a once in a lifetime hunt and he's wondering how does he approach this this opportunity mm. Ooh, i got good feedback about two of them hello mark and steve my question is how do you set your expectations on a once in a lifetime hunt I ended up drawing one of the more coveted elk tags in the state of Oregon this year with basically zero points in the random drawing. And I'm curious how I should go about setting my expectations so I'm not disappointed this fall. Thank you. All right, Steve, you said you had experience here. I do, my head went to that and I, I knew that you did and I feel like I have a little bit, but I'm also curious like what is different because in my mind and hearing this question, it's not necessarily a once in a lifetime species. Yeah. It's a once in a lifetime, like trophy potential for a species yeah. that this guy probably has hunted or will hunt again. So I think that one, I want to hear what you were thinking, but then two, 
Like, how does it differ when it's not a necessarily once in a lifetime species opportunity? Yeah, that that completely threw threw me for a loop because I was immediately went to a hedro mountain goat tag or a sheep tag. You know, yeah, but go through that. What is so, someone's doing that? Who's listening yeah. to us now? So they're 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 tough, man. They're tricky. They're uh, a friend of mine drew a goat tag last year and asked me the same question. You know, it's like God, these are once in a lifetime. I don't want to. You know, you don't like you want to be successful. You don't want it to be over right away. You don't want to regret anything. And the biggest takeaway I've had from having a couple of them is just give like dedicate and there's mistakes i've made dedicate your entire season just drop everything else say i'm not gonna hunt he's got this once in a lifetime elk tag right i'm sure it's you know yeah one of those uh um eastern oregon tags right that takes 26 seven points something stupid like that to draw um just drop everything else and put all your time and effort into that one tag to basically create that you're not in a rush right like the even the year i drew my bighorn sheep tag here in idaho like i had all these other hunts planned and you know certainly that was my biggest focus but my mind was on other things and you know i was like well i do want to get in there and get a ram killed sooner than later because we got this other hunt coming up in october and this next one in november and i in hindsight i wish i would have said you know what drop everything and just you know if you've got two weeks off of work take all two weeks off and and just don't do anything else because that way you can really you know it just takes that pressure off when you have that much time to just really relax and enjoy it and it's a great example of you know we've talked about recently making sure that you're enjoying the the journey the adventure the whole process of the hunt the, even the planning the training everything all the way up and not just be so focused on the one and only goal is to kill an animal. Uh, Cause then all that stuff, you're just going to be like zipping through and not, not just kind of slowing down and, and taking in the moment. But this is, you know, this is a um, elk tag. It, it does change things. And so I think his, he was probably more specifically on, I've got all this anticipation built up for it and I don't want to shoot a subpar bull and regret it down the road. I don't know. Yeah. What do you got there? I don't know what my feedback is on that. Yeah. Other than just establish what is good and you just, you, you got to be content with it. But that the same rule there of like, just give yourself plenty of time to, you know, you know if you let a 320 bull go on day one that you don't, you know, you're giving yourself 10 more days of hunting to kill, kill something bigger. Yeah, two thoughts come to mind initially for me is one, and this, you know, everything you said I'm on board with, setting aside all the time, making it the focus, getting as much, you know, enjoyment and fulfillment out of it as possible. And for me, part of that comes with involving others, right? So whether it's in preseason scouting, whether it's just in the networking about the opportunity and the trophy potential, whether it's the hunt itself and getting more guys with you behind glass, like part of getting the most out of it is making the most of it. And as you involve others, you're creating more memories, more camaraderie. Uh, you're making it more special when it's not just for you and yourself and your animal, but you know, this whole experience that you're getting to share with others. So I think the more people you can involve, the better. Mm. And then also like where my head goes to, and this is, I don't know, this is very, this is just how I see stuff. This is very personal, but 
I would rather kill something with less score or less of an impressive trophy, but still do that like in the hunting style that I prefer or with a good experience compared to having something cooler on the wall, but not with a memory or an experience that I'm as connected to, right? So Mm -hmm. if you get an opportunity and it's like this really cool scenario or a fired up bull or a special because your buddy's there, your daughter's there, whatever, like the the end result, like say, and, and I don't even know what the trophy potential is on you know this tag but like let's say you could kill a 360 bull but you end up killing a 330 340 bull but it was super special because of who was there and how it happened and what led up to it and the opportunity and it's like you're in this moment and all this crazy cool hunting actions there and the right people are there and then you're like do i take this 330 340 bull because i could keep hunting and maybe get a 360 like i don't know to me when i look at an animal after a hunt and uh, I'm not like huge in taxidermy, but like even I pretty much Euro everything. Like if I go look at a Euro, I'm less concerned with like what the thirds are in that bowl and more concerned with what memories does that bring back to me. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say that like on a trophy hunt or a once in a lifetime hunt, I'm less concerned with maximizing the score and more concerned with maximizing the experience, which I guess is, true of all my hunts uh but i would say would still yeah. be true on a trophy hunt yeah no it's as you were just saying that exact thoughts were pouring through my mind of you know, could we get it like i could give two flying f's anymore if i kill a big like a big elk or whether it was you know obviously I'd kill spikes left and right and love it right uh <laughs> whether a bull is 320 or 360 like you know, it's something I think obviously it's a human nature of men to be competitive and oh kill big things, you know. And like it reminds me of we go to trade shows and a lot of guys are like, oh, check out what I killed. And it's like this big buck. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, what's the story? Right. Like that's what matters, right? The 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 experience, the memories, the story of the hunt. That's what matters. Like you killed this giant big buck, but you shot it off your four-wheeler, like, eh, okay, I could. I could really care less. You backpacked in for two weeks solo uh, and killed the scene on the last day of the hunt. Now that's the story I want to hear. Right. Yeah. And that's what you're going to remember the rest of your life is the experience of the hunt. And whether that bull was, you know, again, 320 or 360, don't let that be the focus at all. Just, you know, make sure that you're enjoying it and you have a lot of great memories and there's a great takeaway from the hunt. And, you know, even your tip about, you know, bringing friends along. Cause that just adds to the enjoyment of the hunt. Um, yeah, just don't let the score be the focus and, and let the experience, um, really dictate how, you know, what you're planning. Yeah. Well, guys, as always, if you have questions, whether it's, uh, tactics, strategies, gear, whatever, send them over to us, uh, email podcast at exomountgear.com. You can look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message and you can use whatever device you're on right now to ask us a question on audio as you heard in today's show. And then uh, as always, if you're enjoying the show, consider leaving a rating or review in a podcast app where you can. 
Thanks for tuning in. We're going to be back this week to wrap up our backpack hunt breakdown series. I say wrap up for now. Like it's a series that we've had a lot of great feedback on and want to do again in the future. But in terms of the episodes we have recorded, have recorded and will be releasing this summer, uh, this week is the final installment to that. We're going to do another bonus episode on Friday. We have a ton of uh, before and after the hunt episodes coming with listeners like yourselves about the before stories of their hunts. So stay tuned. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app, and we'll talk to you soon. Which uh, which backpack hunts this week? Scott from up north. Scott and his buddy that went out and uh, oh, gosh, yeah, chased yeah. multiple species. Goat and bear and caribou, right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's a good one.